Pray with me, please. What a mighty God we serve. And we come before you now, Lord, seeking to understand who you are through the pages of your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding, give us the ability to to not only acknowledge it, but also to take it into our very soul and then to live it out. Lord Jesus, you've always wanted an obedient people. Help us, Lord, by your grace, by your spirit, by your power, to live out what you've told us to do. Lord, you told us in your word to, if, if we love you, then we will obey your commandments. And so, Lord, as we get ready to go into the commandments portion of Deuteronomy, help us, Lord, to understand. Help us, Lord, to be excited about obedience to you. Lord, we uh, also lift up to you somebody I forgot uh, who we're uh, continuing praying for, and that is Megan. I pray, Lord, as she is continuing to get settled in Mongolia and relate and to um, develop those relationships and her ministry there. I pray, Father, that you will give her great ministry, great success as you count success, her and her team, in Jesus' name. So at last, we've now come to the place where what everybody and their brother or sister thinks of when encountering the book of Deuteronomy. It's the laws. Isn't that great? Some of you may be thinking, how exciting. You know, it's kind of like reading the nutrition labels on the backs of a of a box of Vincent Pancake Mix. You know, it's good to know it's there, but it leaves me cold. You know, it doesn't apply to me. You know, after all, this is what Moses told Israel to do. It's not what God told me to do. Well, we might be surprised at what we're going to find here in these next uh, chapters. Now, it's a truism in this life that specific rules make life better. Would you agree with that? They make life more fun, believe it or not. And the more dangerous and complicated a thing is, the more specific the rules need to be. Take any sport, like basketball, for example. You know, got March Madness going on, you know, so people are watching that. Consider the standard rules that everybody plays by. Ten feet from the floor to the rim. No more, no less. Half-court line, shot clock, game clock, boundary lines. Only five players per team on the floor at any one time. But now let's say that these rules are subject to change at will. They change from place to place or from team to team or even in the middle of the game. Well, how much fun would it be then to play the game? How much fun would it be to watch the game? Probably not very fun. So in large measure, precisely because basketball holds to universally recognized rules is what makes it fun to watch or to play. But what about nuclear energy? How much energy crisis would be non-existent if we had a whole lot more nuclear reactors? But of course, something that dangerous requires absolute intricate rules that must be followed. Or we can end up with another Chernobyl or Fukushima, right? Now, things of this life require rules to various levels and degrees. How much more do we need rules to govern our lives in relationship to the Lord? I suppose that it's not impossible to have no rules when it comes to man's relationship with his creator. Because God could have hardwired into all of us exactly what would be needed to live and have a perfect relationship with him. But that's not the way it is. Is it? You know, it's it's obvious that that's the case. 
Indeed, the very first words that Yahweh spoke to Adam and Eve, our first parents, were commands. And what were those commands? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And I think as a planet, we've done a pretty good job at obeying that command. Did you agree? But soon, however, the Lord gave a negative command. And what was that? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know what? Even before he gave that command, he gave a positive one, which was you may eat of any tree in the garden. Before sin entered the world, the Lord gave to people several commands. All of them were positive except one negative command. But when we think about this, where do our minds tend to focus? On the positive commands or the negative? We know, don't we? It's the negative command we tend to focus on. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you know, the Lord has given his people a lot of positive commands and a lot of negative commands as well. Now, I've heard it said that if we spend our time doing the do's, then we won't have time to do the don'ts. Is that right? It's pretty good, pretty good advice. So as we go through the next 15 chapters of Deuteronomy, and I did say 15 chapters, of course, not all today, but we're going to go through this. We're going to experience a lot of do this and a lot of don't do that. Well, admittedly, many of these specific laws that we're going to cover don't you know, apply to us, you know, like whole cloth, like transfer them over to our lives. For example, how many of us own donkeys? I don't see anybody here on a donkey, but there's a lot of talk in there about donkeys or oxen or, or goats. Or how many of us, when we do business transactions, carry with us rocks of a certain weight that we measure things against? Anybody at all? Or how about this next one? How many parents of daughters actually keep evidence of their daughter's virginity after bride and groom have consummated their marriage? I don't see any hands. (laughs) But it's in there. So we have a dilemma. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and by the way, that was the last letter he ever wrote. And so these things were very important on his heart. He was sitting in prison writing to his mentee, Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God, all of it and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman, the young person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, if all means all, and that's all all means, then even what I just mentioned is included. For all of these things are part of Holy Scripture. So what do we do when we come across a specific passage of Scripture, a certain law, that deal with things that seemingly do not pertain to us in any way, shape, or form. Because we're going to see a lot of these kinds of things. Well, the same thing as we do with any passage of Scripture. We seek to rightly understand it as it was understood back in the day when it was first written or first heard. And then we discover its timeless truth, and then we seek to apply it in our day today. As we begin to discover in the book of James, there's a lot more that meets the eye with James. And those who've been there understand what I'm talking about. And so let me give you a shameless plug here. You know, we still have room for you. And so on Wednesday nights, IBS, Interactive Bible Study from 7 to 8, come and join us. We just got started, so you can jump in with us. So beginning today, we're going to deal with many laws and rules that Moses gave to the people. But they're not just a bunch of laws and rules 
thrown in at random. There is a method here to Moses' madness, as it were. And it may seem like it's it's going to drive me crazy if we don't quite understand everything that's going on there. But, you know, there's really a key to all of this, as we would consider madness. And we've already found the key. We've already handled the key. And that key is the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Remember how we said that the Ten Commandments together is a summary statement of the covenant the Lord made with his people. And so we can be confident that when we deal with a certain commandment or particular law, it's tied somehow, some way to one or more of those Ten Commandments. Now, as we go through these laws, many of them will be obvious, like the passage we're going to talk about today in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 32. And so if you don't have your Bible out there at that passage, go ahead and take it out right now because we're going to go through it. Again, the whole chapter this week, as we did last week, and by the way, that's on page 173 in your pew Bible if you need that number. Again, like last week, we will deal with the same number of verses. We had 32 last week. We're going to deal with 32 this week. So we won't have time to go into detail with with any of these, really. But what we're going to find here is something absolutely of immense value for us, even with us, in Mechanicsville, Virginia, 21st century. The title of the message pretty much sums it up. Acceptable worship. Did you know that God sometimes accepts worship and sometimes he doesn't? We're going to discover today that the Lord makes a distinction between worship that he accepts and worship that he does not accept. And so let's walk through these worship-related commands, beginning with verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Notice in verse 1 the extent of this command. All that the Lord is about to tell Israel to do in relation to worship is confined to the land of promise. It's his land, his sacred space. The Lord did not tell Israel to go and Israelize the world, right? He told them to do these things within his land he was giving the people. So let's read verses 2 to 4 to see the scope of the Lord's command. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God that way. Again, Moses directed the people to confine their activities within the land. But within the land, Yahweh told Israel, to destroy all things pagan regarding the seven nations Israel was to kick out of the land. Now, there were many places that the pagans worshipped throughout the land, along with the sheer number of gods and goddesses that they worshipped, around 240 in their pantheon. Now, there's no indication that there there were any buildings that they worshipped in. They worshipped out in nature. They worshipped on the mountains. They worshipped on the hills and they worshiped under many large shade trees. And Moses said, tear down every altar and every pillar. Now, the pillars are symbols of the god Baal. 
And then the Asherim poles, symbols of the goddess Asherim. Do away with it all. Smash it until there is no more trace of it anywhere. No more reminders of what the pagans worshipped. Completely clean is what God commanded his people to do. Now in verse 4, we find the reason why Moses was to carry out this task. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Well, what way is that? In, in a sense, in a word, in any old way, in any old place that Israel was to choose. Pagan ways and worship spaces, pagan altars and symbols are absolutely unacceptable to Yahweh. And every person who uses these things offers to Yahweh unacceptable worship. So what kind of worship is acceptable to Yahweh in this context? So let me summarize verses 5 to 9. Seek the one place that the Lord is going to choose for you as to where to worship. You shall bring everything he requires there and offer the sacrifices, the tithes, and the free will offerings. Offer them according to the way the Lord would have you offer them. And then turn right around and as families, eat the offerings. Rejoice in the blessings of the Lord. So what does that sound like to you? Worship and dinner on the grounds. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's right. But every Sunday, as it were, would be fifth Sunday for them. Every Sunday. In other words, make the effort in loving obedience to the command of the Lord to attend regular worship at one gathering place, offer the offerings, and share a meal together. What a great reason to make the trip, if nothing else, for the food, right? Worshiping and eating together with all of God's people. Now, what a great display of love and unity in front of the pagans whenever the Lord wants his people there. So let me say a brief word about verse 8, and you'll see it here. It looks like Moses is telling the people that they're sinning. There's a couple places, like in the book of Judges, that talk about every man did what was right in his own eyes. And Moses says the same thing here. He says, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. He said, you're not supposed to do that. But remember the context here. The context is in regard to the issue of worshiping the Lord in the desert. You just can't worship however you want to worship, is what he's saying. But in essence, Moses tells them that change is coming when they cross over the Jordan to take the land. Get ready, Moses says, for a permanent arrangement where everybody in Israel is to come to one central spot to offer sacrifices acceptable to God, which is their spiritual worship. I mentioned last week that Moses, as Israel's pastor and most excellent teacher, repeated himself at various places for emphasis. This is what we told the students. Okay, class, take out your highlighters and mark your textbooks because you're going to be tested on this. And verses 10 to 14 is one of those times that Moses repeats himself. Now, let me summarize. Go to the central location. Bring all the required sacrifices to offer them there along with your tithes. And when you and your family have made all the required offerings, have a meal, rejoice before the Lord for all of his blessings. But something added, and don't forget to include the Levite who lives among you, one of those clergy guys. He, he lives in your town. Bring him along to the central meeting place. In other words, Moses is saying, listen up. Don't forget this all-important thing in the life of the nation. Attend worship and rejoice in the Lord's provision and have a barbecue afterwards. 
Now in verses 15 to 16, Moses now directs the people to a joyful command. Eat whatever meat the law allows you to eat and eat as much as you want. Is that great? Don't weigh yourself down with the notion that you can only eat well when you go and worship the Lord in the central place. You can eat and enjoy the blessings right at home. But the warning stands. Don't eat the blood along with the meat. So what's up with this? I see two things here. First, the Lord described what the blood was and then what it was for. Leviticus 17.11 says this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So in other words, the blood was not to be taken in, but it was to be applied upon as in atonement for sin. Remember when the Lord told the people to put the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts of their houses so that the angel of death would pass over them when they were coming out of Egypt. That's kind of the same idea here. Now, the second reason for not eating the blood, it's a bit more gruesome, but that pagan religions, probably the the very gods they were worshiping, demanded people actually drink the blood of the sacrificed animals. Perhaps the Lord told the people to completely separate themselves from all pagan practices by not ingesting the blood of a sacrifice. Eat your meat well done is basically what he's saying. And so I think it fits that context pretty well here. And so in 17 to 28, the summary of this section is simply this. Be a person of integrity when it comes to worship. Whatever you have set aside as holy, Moses says, or special, again, that's what holy is, regarding bringing of the central place to worship, all those things that you're planning on doing it, do that. Set aside all of it and don't eat any of it at home. And take care of the Levite as well. He's putting that in there. And when you get to the central place of worship, offer the sacrifice according to the way the Lord wants it done. Pour out the blood on the altar. Take what you offer in sacrifice and enjoy that part for your dinner on the grounds. Take that and eat it. And finally, verses 29 to 32, we see that worship is a lifestyle. It's not just at the place where the Lord sends people to go and worship but it's 24-7, 365, and 366 on leap year days. Follow along as I read these verses, 29 to 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you all the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods that I may do the same? You should not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything I command you, you should be careful to do. You should not add to it or take from it. It's pretty serious stuff here. Worship, Moses said, again, is 365. It's 24-7, whether at the central meeting place or at home. God's people are to remember who they are. They're to completely separate from the pagans and their abhorrent practices. Now, the Lord used or surely will use his people to cleanse his sacred space 
of the people who worship other gods. And so the question really is, why in the world would a member of Israel in covenant relationship with the Lord even think about, let alone inquire about, and God forbid, attempt to practice the ways of the pagan that they just kicked out of the land? Why indeed? Let me give you a very brief thumbnail sketch of these gods that the nations worshipped. These seven spiritual squatter nations that were there that needed to be kicked out of Yahweh's land. As I mentioned, the seven nations worshipped about 240 gods and goddesses. Some of the names of the gods you may be familiar with as you're you know, reading through the scripture, like names like El and Baal and Dagon. You know, El was the head guy. And Baal and Dagon were the sons of El. The documents and stories of the gods and goddesses are stuff that Marvel Comics can can really glean from here. The gods seem helpless, even regarding the change of weather. I came across one brief story where gods and goddesses actually have to pray to a greater god for relief of famines. The gods also covet the things their fellow gods have, and they seek to kill them to get it. And there's a couple stories that actually showed that very thing. And believe it or not, gods and goddesses engaged in sexual activity. A lot of it. Of all kinds. And I'll leave it there. In one story, adultery was encouraged by the god regarding his goddess wife as he offered her to another god. The gods were of no real help for the guidance when it came to people. The people resorted to divination. And divination, according to one source, are human efforts to control and understand and manipulate the gods by methods believed to guarantee the desired results. It's kind of like for us, you know, we say the right prayers and we do the right things and we expect God to give us a certain response. That's the form of divination. These things were practiced most often when someone was in a crisis like when they needed healing or protection or getting food or water or even getting some knowledge about what to do in a certain crisis situation. And those who practiced divination did various things in their attempts to control the divine realm. For example, they thought that the gods were obligated to do things for the people because of the certain arrangements of internal organs of sacrificial animals. They would look at those things and say, oh, God is supposed to do that because of the way these organs are arranged in the animals, or even dead, unborn children. Other divination practices included throwing six up in the air, letting them land, and the gods are supposed to do this or that according to the way that six landed. Now, its modern-day equivalent is horoscopes, tarot cards, palm readings, and on and on. That's a form of divination, and God hates it. The point is, since the gods were were pretty busy killing each other and sometimes helpless over nature, the people felt they needed to take matters into their own hands. And of course, when the gods failed, what did the priests do? They offered some story about how to cover for the god, kind of like fake news, right, going on. Yahweh, however, says this, trust me. I'm in absolute control. There are no rival gods equal to me. The Lord demanded a radical separation between his ways and those of the gods of the seven nations. And God told 
the people to dispatch those seven nations and their gods from his land. But some practices are absolutely wicked, but still persist, like the horror of child sacrifice, otherwise known as infanticide. There are bills right now in several states that are calling for infanticide in our country now. We got to pray. Hosea recorded a meme way back in the day that was popular in pagan worship, and it goes like this, the fruit of the body for the sin of the soul. In other words, some gods required their children to be offered as human sacrifices so that dad or mom might be, in our vernacular, saved. Other reasons for a child's sacrifice was for protection or for good crops or for personal prosperity. The gods require that of the people. The overall point of the chapter is that Yahweh is telling his people, the only acceptable way to worship me is a complete break from the pagan ways and practices of the nations around you. And one author put it this way, the text is a radical claim, radical claim for the lordship of the God of Israel and a total rejection of the claim of any other deity to Israel's worship. No worship of any rival gods will do or their ways will do. So what can we make of all of this? I mentioned at the beginning of the message that every rule Moses gives the people is tied in some way or another to one or more of the Ten Commandments. And so what do you think is tied, what commandment do you think is tied here? Anybody have a guess? <laughs> Number one commandment, have no other gods before me. Yes. I also reminded us often of what Yahweh said before he gave the first commandment to his people. You know, as we know, he didn't start out just by saying, do this, do that. He said this, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am your savior. I'm your deliverer. Now, therefore, since I've saved you, now do this. I'm telling you how to live now. And this specific instance, it is Moses' explanation applying commandment number one to their lives. But what about us? 21st century. There's many applications here for us as well. First application is a parallel to verse one. Do these things in the land that we as followers of Christ are to consider the body of Christ, the church, not the church building, but the church as sacred space. This is where the reign of Christ is to be most evident. Holiness, purity, a love and commitment to what the Lord would have us be and do are all to be a priority in the sacred space of the Lord Jesus in his church. In other words, Christians don't let Christians live in unrepentant sin. That's the idea here. What happens when that happens? It dishonors the Lord who saved us. Now, we've covered this recently about how to handle this, how to do this, you know, Matthew 18 and so forth. So we don't need to cover that right now, but we'll cover it later at different places. But sin, when discovered in our midst, it must be dealt with using his methods, by his power, by his compassion, and guided by his word above all. We must take care of it. On the other side of the coin, the Church of Jesus Christ is sacred space. Because that means what? 
It's not sacred space out there. Okay? We are to deal with sin among us, but let the Lord judge the sin and sinners outside the church. How many people go out there and charging everybody, you better straighten up your life. Tell all those sinners they need to straighten up. Do this, do that. Well, can sinners do this, do that? No, no. As it's been said, the world is going to world, right? So turn with me to to, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, to see this very thing in action. Now remember the context that, you know, the, the Corinthians were proud of their progressive Christianity, so to speak, that this man was having his father's wife, had sexual relations with his stepmom. And Paul basically said, get this man out of here. You know, they're not, you're not doing right. This is sacred space. Sin belongs out there, not in here. And so 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, Paul writes this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, have no fellowship with them. Why do we give those kinds of folks, people who claim to be Christians, but yet, you know, just I'm going to live the way I want to live. Why do we give them a pass? Paul says, don't. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? The world's going to world. We got to take care of one another in here. God's sacred space. He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Notice what he says here. You are to judge. God judges those outside. And Paul says about this immoral man, purge the evil person from among you. And the point is clear. We're to deal with sin among us in the body of Christ. And again, for us, it's grace united. And also one-on-one relationships with those that we have in other churches. But we're not allowed, okay, as grace united to go and confront other churches as to what's going on in their fellowships. Okay, we've got to stay in our lane, so to speak. But we do need to fast and pray for the leaders of those various churches if they indeed are leading their people astray. So I see a second application as well. Worship that the Lord accepts is radical separation from pagan ways. And this has to do with purpose and motive. Why are we here on Sunday mornings? Or should I say, why should we be here on Sunday mornings? It is to give the Lord our undivided attention as we together worship him who is due all honor and glory. Now, right. We give ourselves to one another in fellowship as well. We cross over from our own private world that we've had during the week, and we get into the lives of our brothers and sisters. We take that risk. Now, there's a lot of us who are introverts. I'm including. I'm one of the very strong introverts, but I have made it a point to get out of my comfort zone and get into the lives of other people. And all of us are to do the same thing. And so even if a non-Christian joins us in our midst on a Sunday morning, what do they do? They come out from their world, enter into our world, and we do the same with them. We enter into their world, 
as fellow images of God, but not as fellow Christians if we know that they're not Christians. Make sense? Now, it should be obvious that the purpose for Sunday morning worship services is not evangelism. It's not evangelism. What's it for? It's for God's people to worship him. Can dead people worship a living God? No. It takes a person to become alive first. This is the time. This is the place for God's people to come together and worship him. And there are two reasons for this. God commands and early Christians give examples of us as God's people to use our time together on the Lord's day to worship him. But with many local assemblies, the corporate worship service has turned into a time where non-Christians are evangelized. Now, some are effective at doing that, I suppose, because how many people say the sinner's prayer, you know, at the end of the service or whatever. But tell me something. If Sunday morning corporate worship service is primarily used for evangelism, when are God's people going to worship together? Doesn't happen, does it? This is the time we're supposed to worship together. And second, what the apostles considered as their top priority regarding the ministry in the church was what? They're, they had some top priorities with them. For example, in Acts 6, there was a serious problem. The widows were being neglected, some of them. There were arguments and there were fights and it was threatening to split the church, threatening the unity of the church. And so what did P Peter say to the people? He says, I know this is a problem and I know that we need to take care of this, but it's not our job as apostles to wait on tables. Uh, choose among you seven people full of the spirit of wisdom to take care of this issue. But for us as apostles, we have two primary jobs, two primary responsibilities, and that is prayer and that is ministry of the word. Those are the things that we are to be about. We're going to give ourselves to that. And as we know, the proclaiming of the plain teaching of God's word is central to our worship time. Isn't that right? Or at least it ought to be. But I have a question. In our Bibles, how many books do we have? How many writings do we have? 66. Of these 66 writings, Genesis to Revelation, how many of these writings are geared toward non-Christians? None. Zero. Absolutely nada. And so when we come together to worship, we're supposed to come together to expound the word, we're supposed to come together to learn of God's word so that we as believers can grow in God's word. Why? So we can go out there and be the witness. So if the entire word of God is geared toward God's people and the, and the word of God is central, then what is corporate worship for? Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so again, when is evangelism to be done? Outside our time of worship and training. Each of us, as we go out of here, is charged with the privilege and responsibility to take the gospel to our friends, our neighbors, our family members, and even our enemies. 
So Brother Stephen talked about how much of a burden, how effective are you at doing this? We need to be doing this outside. We need to be trained on the inside here. They need to hear from us who so desperately need to hear the, the words of life. Will you take it to them? So what is acceptable worship? It's twofold. It's where God's people come together to give him undivided attention in praise and worship, for he is worthy. And second, as God's people, we receive instruction from his word. We apply it to our lives, and the results are that we help one another toward maturity that has become more like Jesus. That we would love what Jesus loves. That our hearts will be broken over the things that break God's heart. We just sang this song. We love what Jesus loves, or more appropriately, who Jesus loves. And who does Jesus love? His Father. His Father. He loves the Father, and he showed it, didn't he? He showed it by obedience to the cross. I've shared this many times lately, but we need to see and keep this at the forefront of our minds and hearts. The night before he was crucified, the Lord Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 31, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. And just so we know with certainty what the Father commanded Jesus to do, he states in John 10, 17 and 18, he says, for this reason, the Father loves me. Pay attention. He loves me because of this. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down voluntarily. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He did what he did. He placed himself out there for the entire world to see. Suffering all that shame, all that humiliation for one reason. To show the world that he loves the father. And my challenge for all of us who know Christ is to love Jesus more. What did Jesus say? If you love me, what? Finish it. Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. So as we close the message, that Paul's words ring in our hearts and ears in Romans 11, 33 to 12 too. So you could turn there with me if you want to, or you can just listen, but Romans 11, 33 to 12 too. After Paul explained the gospel, after he was saying, you know, how great and glorious it is and, and the, the, the profound changes and how much glory God gets from saving people, he says this, all oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable perfect. And because the infinite mercy 
and love of God, the least we can do is offer ourselves, as grace united, to him as a living sacrifice. For this offering of ourselves as followers of Christ is holy and acceptable to God. And that is spiritual worship. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, the one who's glorious beyond glory, the one who is pure beyond pure, the one who is, is the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who desires so much to have a relationship with all of his imagers. But Lord, in the, in, you have created us, you've hardwired us with a, with a will. Lord, you have given us the choice of whether or not to, to worship you. And those of us who by faith have repented from our sins and, and accepted the gospel of Christ, we want to do that. Thank you for the change that you made in our hearts. Thank you for the, the, the transformation that you are making. And Lord, we know that it won't be complete until we actually get on the other side. And Lord, that's why we resonate with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. But in the meantime, Lord, we want to give our all to you. We want to be careful to give you uh, praise and worship, but also to give you our obedience and to show through our obedience that we love you. So Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for Deuteronomy and how applicable it is even to our day because your word is timeless. I pray, Father, as we turn our attention to uh, once again our singing and also our giving, I pray, Lord, that you help us to do these acts of worship because you are worthy. Thank you, Lord, for these things. We pray in Jesus' name.